1, if you turn to Galatians chapter 1, it would be very appropriate for us tonight to begin reading in Galatians at verse number 1 and just read this entire chapter because what we have to talk about, well, the whole chapter really all fits together and... um, It'd be good if we could just keep it all together and read that way, but we don't have time to read the entire chapter tonight, so I can't do that. So what we try to do, as you know, is break different sections of the word down, and we go through parts of it and a few verses at a time, sometimes one verse, sometimes one word, and we spend our time with that, and we back up over things and go over things again to make sure that we try to get everything to fit together as it should. So I'll try to catch you up a little bit on the different parts as we go along. Uh, as I said, I don't have time to read all of uh, this first chapter. So we're going to start at verse number 11. Last week we read down to verse number 24, and we are considering verses 11 through 24 as one whole section in one series of messages that is entitled God's Gospel. And we're going to be on this for, for a little while, but I'm not going to read this entire section. We're just going to read the verses that we've covered thus far and then what we're going to talk about tonight. So in verse number 11, it says, Paul says, but I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For uh, for ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the tradition of my fathers. I think it would be safe to say that the epistle to Galatians is one of the most unusual, if not the most unusual of all of Paul's epistles. And that's because he begins this letter with no no pleasantries, there are no commendations for the people. But instead, in that first part, Paul just launches immediately into a problem that he sees in the Galatian churches, and that is a gross error concerning Christian doctrine. There is a doctrinal problem in the Galatian churches. There's also a personal problem for the Apostle Paul. And those two things are a little bit difficult to separate because one hinges upon the other. There is a doctrinal problem because someone is teaching a false doctrine concerning justification. And there is a personal problem for Paul because he's the one that's teaching proper doctrine. And others are saying that Paul has no gospel. He doesn't have a true gospel, that he didn't receive his gospel from God, that his gospel is different from what the apostles taught and what Jesus taught, the other apostles, that is. And so they refuse to believe that Paul has any authority when he speaks on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So in other words, again, they're saying that Paul has his own doctrine. It's a made-up doctrine, and it carries no weight. Now, as you know, the issue concerns a group of people that are called the Judaizers, and they came after Paul, after he'd preached in Galatia and started the churches there. They followed him there. They came afterwards, and they began to teach that uh, faith alone is not sufficient for our salvation, but they were telling people in Galatia that they had to be circumcised according to the laws of Moses, and then when they were circumcised, then their salvation would be complete. In verses 6 through 10, Paul pounces on that false doctrine, and in effect, what he does is to pronounce a Christian curse on these people. 
Now, we might not think there's any such thing as a Christian curse, but we would do well to heed what the Apostle Paul says here because he teaches that anybody who preaches a false gospel is under a curse from God. Now, the Scriptures teach that pastors and teachers that handle the Word of God have to be very careful about what they teach. Because if a person preaches a false gospel, the condemnation is greater for him than it will be for those that he teaches. Now, with the utmost respect, I want to say this next thing to you. Now, with respect, so don't anybody throw anything at me, the people are dumb sheep. That's what, how the Bible describes us. We're really like dumb sheep. We don't know the way. And so we depend upon a shepherd. We depend on someone to guide us in the right direction. And a teacher of God's word has that responsibility to teach the truth. And if, if he's not teaching the truth, then shame on him. And if he does it by mistake... Well, maybe we could try to excuse him, but really not because a teacher ought to study more. He ought to know more about God's word. And if he unknowingly teaches a false doctrine, shame on him because he he should have tried to study a little bit harder, I think, to learn the truth. But if a person does it deliberately, then woe to that person because when it's done deliberately, you can, I mean, you're, you're purposely causing people to die and go to hell. So... You have these false teachers that are in uh, the churches of Galatia or had come up from Judea to go there to to preach this false doctrine to them. And we don't know how deliberate they were, whether they're trying their best. I have a little bit to say about that in a few messages a little bit later on about what they really believed and what they taught and how far off that they were. But whether we think that they were deliberate or not, that deliberate or not, they're still teaching a false doctrine, and the result of a false doctrine will be the same, that people that believe it die and go to hell. Now, if we look at these Judaizers and the history of them, we would think, well, it must have been very deliberate, because we know what the Jews were like concerning the doctrines of Christ. Uh, they were trying to undermine Christianity all of the time. And the simple truth of it here is, is those that teach false doctrine, the people that hear it will suffer and those that teach it will suffer even more for having taught it. So we're looking here at verses 11 through 24 now in which Paul insists that he had received his gospel and the doctrines that he taught directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. There aren't any intermediaries here. Even though later he goes to Jerusalem and he meets the apostles there, or some of the apostles at first we'll see a little bit later on in the second chapter. But... um, And they recognized his apostleship and they commended his apostleship, but that wasn't the deciding factor about whether he was really an apostle of the Lord and whether he, how he had received the gospel that he taught. So in the introduction to these messages last week, I showed you that there are some ground rules for this discussion that we have in the end of chapter one. And first of all, this is what we looked at, the essential postulates from Paul's conversion. And there are three postulates that must be true or else the rest of Paul's arguments are of no value. Now, Paul is a master logician, probably the most ordered person that we're going to read after in Scripture. And he always has this approach where he very carefully lays out an argument and then he begins to draw conclusions from them. 
Well, there are certain conclusions that Paul will draw here that will help us to understand how he got his gospel and how he proves that it comes from the, directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. So the main point that he's trying to establish in verses 11 through 24 is the authority for his doctrine. And first of all, he says the gospel is not his invention. Secondly, he didn't receive it from tradition. And then thirdly, it's of divine origin. And those three postulates are interwoven throughout these verses, and they logically proceed from the circumstances surrounding Paul's conversion, what he was before his conversion, how he was converted, and then what happened in the few short years after his conversion. So that's what we're going to study, and we are studying in these verses. Is what happens before his conversion, what happened when he was converted, and what happened after he was converted. And all three of those areas lead to the conclusion that there was a mighty working of God in Paul's life, that he was called by God to be an apostle. He did have the authority to speak for God, and the gospel that he preached was God's gospel. Now this evening we're going to look at the first of these, which is actually the first proof, which is actually the second point of your outline, and that is the events prior to Paul's conversion. What happened before his conversion? And what we have here is a little bit of the history of who Paul was before his salvation, and and then, of course, it goes on in what he did in the years right after he was converted. And verses 11 and 12 help us to define the postulates, and then in verse number 13, we get some history of his activities before becoming a Christian. He says in verse 13, For ye have heard of my conversation in time past, in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. Paul's life before he became a Christian was a well-known fact. And everywhere he ministered, people knew something about Paul. Now, he says here that you have heard of my conversation, and that's the King James way of saying you've heard about what my life was like. You, You heard how that I used to live according to the Jews' religion, and that was well known to the Jews because he was a hero of sorts to them. He was one of the brightest and best of their, of their prospects and a member of the Sanhedrin. It was also known to Christians because after he was converted, there was great skepticism about his conversion. They didn't know if it was real, and they thought that maybe Paul was pulling some sort of trickery. What he was trying to do was to, to draw them out and then set, it, set them up so that he might kill them. Well, we first meet Paul at the end of Acts chapter 7. And this is when he was known as Saul, which is his Jewish name. And he was present at the time that Stephen gave his defense of his faith before the Sanhedrin. And his first activity, the first thing that we see Paul doing, he's at the death of this great servant, God's gifted servant, Stephen. And we get this first glimpse of him with close association to persecution. So that's what we want to look at first. He was a persecutor. In the 13th verse, he says, Beyond measure, I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. And that was not an exaggeration. Paul is not embellishing what he was before he was saved. 
We have this recorded for us in the 8th chapter of Acts. Beginning in verse number 1, it says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. At that time there was great persecution against the church, against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. And you'll notice in our text, as Paul describes this, he says, beyond measure, I persecuted the church. And that means with excess. Or as we would say, he was way out of bounds. He went way beyond where he needed to go. What Paul did was with extreme violence involved. So he was inflamed and he went about like a rabid dog with madness trying to find Christians and kill them. In, in Acts 8.1 where we just read, it says Paul was consenting unto his death. Of course, that's the death of Stephen. And the word consenting there means approval with pleasure. Paul was happy to see Stephen stoned. And so what we're looking at here is kind of a a type of bloodthirstiness that was in Paul, that he couldn't get enough of this. It delighted him to kill Christians. And so he was a very brutal man. He brutally killed believers. He was cruel about it. He persecuted. And he thought that he was doing exactly what he should do. You see, the worst hatred and vitriol and violence that he could bring against Christians was what he was expected to do. In fact, that was considered to be one of the most blessed activities that the Jews could be involved with. So what he was trying to do was to stamp out the threat of Christianity. If Christianity prevails, then his religion will fail. And so at any cost, what Paul wanted to do was stamp out this religion and if he could strike fear into the people's hearts that were practicing it and he could keep others through that fear from coming to Christ, then so much the better. And so with that brutality, he attacked this problem of of Christians and how they were growing in Jerusalem. And then also in Acts 8.3, we see that Paul went into houses and it says he pulled out men and women alike and he took them to prison and there they would be tried and, and then put to death. Now we think about a civilized engagement does not include women and children. We, we don't have too much trouble with the persecution and killing of men, sadly to say, but you leave the women alone, leave the children alone, because mostly we think, well, they're helpless. They, they don't have a part of this, even though there are some women that I don't want to tangle with. But here, uh, you know, that, that's, that's kind of off limits. So you leave women and children alone. Well, children aren't actually mentioned here, but what happens when you take... Uh, men and women both away and they're killed. They don't have a welfare system. They don't have orphanages then. So somebody had to take pity on these poor children or else they die or they end up as beggars on the streets. That didn't matter to Paul. He had no mercy on women, children, men. It didn't make any difference. Kill the mothers and fathers and who cares what happens to the children. Now I think that what you can see in that is that Paul was really a student of Old Testament Scripture. And we learn that as we look at verse number 14. But being a good student of Scripture, he knew what God had commanded Joshua to do to Gentiles. Remember the Old Testament? Joshua was told to go into Canaan and kill all the men, the women, the children, even the animals in some cases. Wipe all of it out. Well, a person 
that departed from the Jewish faith, a Jew who became a Christian was no better than a Gentile. And so they would get treated like Gentiles would be treated. So I can imagine that Paul in his own mind, he has this view of himself that he is, a, he is one of Joshua's mighty warriors or one of David's mightiest men. So he really thought that he was doing the right thing. He persecuted the church. He wasted it. Then in the ninth chapter of Acts, the first verse there says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. So here's the thing about this. While he's living this and while he's in the middle of it, Paul was at the top of his game. If you needed somebody to go track down Christians and to kill them, Paul was the guy that you called. He was the enforcer. He, he was at the top of his game. He was more than happy to go hunt down Christians. Now, this past that he had, what he was like before his conversion, was a vivid memory to him all throughout his ministry. Now it becomes an object for Paul of his deepest sorrow. He deeply regretted how he treated the church of God. And so I think it's with tears in his eyes that he must have written scriptures like 1 Corinthians 15, 9, where he says, For I am the least of the apostles, then am not meet to be called or not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And Paul wrote that verse as a testimony to the wonderful, matchless grace of God that would take a man like him, someone so vile, Someone had committed such wicked atrocities and God saved him by his marvelous grace. But in Paul's mind, in one sense he had the idea that he was on the ve- if he was an apostle, he's on the very bottom rung of the apostleship. Now that's in this case, and we're going to see how that idea changes a little bit as we get into other parts of, of Galatians. But in this thing, as far as being a persecutor of the church and what he was like before he was saved, he said, I'm, I'm just the worst. I'm on the very bottom rung. And perhaps that may be a part of this driving force that was behind Paul, that after all he had done against Christ, when he became a Christian, it's like he wanted to make up for it do whatever he could to make up for it. And he knew that he could never repay what Christ had done to him, but he wasn't going to stop trying. I mean, what happened to him on the road to Damascus was such an impactful thing that he simply could not stop thinking about what God had done for him. Well, we go on then to the 14th verse, and we find here this great impulse that drove Paul in his hatred for Christians. What is that driving force behind him? He says here, I profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals, being more exceedingly zealous of the tradition of my fathers. Now, there's one word that we can use that sums it all up about what Paul was at this time of his life. One word. And that word, he was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. If you pay attention on Sunday mornings, by now you know a lot about the Pharisees. Now, we could say Paul was a Jew, but that wouldn't be quite accurate because as it relates to what an Old Testament Jew was like, Paul was nothing like that. So what you can do when you look at Paul is you remove the historical Old Testament from what he was, and you remove the typological meanings of of, uh, things that you have in the Old Testament, the sacrifices and all of that. Move all of that out of the way when you talk about Paul. Move out all of the prophetical meaning of the Scripture, and you just simply say he was a Pharisee. 
He was a Pharisee. I mean, he's nothing like an Old Testament Jew that had learned from Moses and, and from Samuel and David and Jeremiah and Isaiah. He was a Pharisee. He's a member of this sect that arose during the intratestamental period that had buried the truth of God's word under a mountain of man-made rules and restrictions. It was a sect that had bloated the Mosaic law with hundreds of oral traditions so that the laws of God and the purpose of them were completely unrecognizable. Here you have a system that sucked out the meaning of the law. Now later on, Paul found out better and he said this, the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But that's not how Paul looked at it when he was a Pharisee because to them the law pointed, said nothing at all about Christ and completely missed it. So the Pharisaical law brought no one to Christ. We know what it did to him. I mean, simply calling Paul a Pharisee was enough to say that he hated Christ, that he was an enemy of the doctrines of Christianity. And if we don't really know where Paul was when Jesus was crucified, but we know who did it. It was the ones that were Paul's teachers. It was Paul's mentors. It was the ones that Paul had the most respect for. They were the ones that were conniving and lying and cheating and betrayed the Lord of glory. And so... Those are the people that called Jesus a devil and then hired false witnesses against him at his trial. These are the same people that went to Pilate and said, he's a blasphemer, he's somebody that, that uh, he is a seditionist, was actually their charge that would, that would stick with the Romans. And they insisted that Jesus be crucified. And if Paul could have had a hand in that, if he could have been there, he would have. He says in the 14th verse, I profited in the Jews' religion. And that means that he was making progress. It means he's well on his way to a lofty position among the Jews as a scholar. Now, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, but as he, grow, as he grows older, if he stays in that religion, Paul's going to turn out to be one of their go-to guys in the traditions of the fathers. I mean, he, he's, a, he's a, uh, educated in this. And if he hadn't been a... A Benjamite instead of a, or if he had been a Levite, I should say, instead of a Benjamite, he would have been high priest material. I mean, under that system, he could have made it all the way to high priest. Well, he relates a little bit of his training in Acts chapter 22. This was when he was in Jerusalem and he was uh, being beaten and about to be killed by a mob. And so he began to speak to the crowd. He waved his hand to get some silence and he began to speak in the Hebrew tongue. And that just perked up the people and they began to listen to him because they weren't used to hearing Hebrew. Uh, mostly the common language that they spoke was Aramaic. And so when, when someone stood up and began in public to talk in Hebrew, then they listened. So they listened to Paul and he began to speak in Hebrew. And he says to them, I verily, I am verily a man which am a Jew born in Tarsus, a city of Cilicia, yet brought up in this city, that is in Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and was zealous toward God as ye all are this day. Day. So he says, I was brought up in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel. Now that's the customary way of saying I was trained by Gamaliel. I lived in his house. I ate his food. I sat by him, near him. I listened to everything that he had to say. And what I know, everything I know, I learned from him. And that was a very impressive credential for Paul. Well, who is this person Gamaliel that he talks about? 
Well, that's Gamaliel is mentioned in Acts chapter 5 as being a doctor of the law, a person who is considered of great reputation among the Jews. He's the one that gave advice to the Sanhedrin that they should be careful about what they did with the apostles. And he said, if they're not from God, then very quickly it'll be found out whether they're telling the truth or not. And so he had a good reputation. People listened to him because he was a doctor of the law. Now, that part of it, being a doctor of the law, that means he's an expert in all these oral traditions of the, of the Jews, that he had received his teaching from a long line of teachers before him, rabbis before him. So Gamaliel is no ordinary Pharisee. He's the best of them, and that's the one who trained Paul. So here is Paul. He's busily on his way to being as good as or even better than the person who taught him. And this is what he means when he describes his pre-conversion in Philippians. There he says, Though I might might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. blameless. So he says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And to Paul, that meant the same thing as being a Pharisee. They're the same. So you have to be aware here of what's in Paul's mind. He, he was molded in a religion of works and bondage. He was a product of that type of upbringing, and that's all that he understood. It's that way or it's no way. And there's no way that Paul's going to bend to any kind of perversion of Judaism that's called Christianity. He very well understood how diametrically opposed his Phariseeism was to Christianity. So stamping it out wasn't just a mere duty. This is something that has to be done. I mean, he was, I mean, you think about an Islamic jihadist or even Osama bin Laden himself never thought that he fought for a more righteous cause than did Paul. And this is what he must do with his life. So this is the simple conclusion of his training and his religion that the more that he progressed in the Jews' religion, the more he progressed in his hatred towards Christianity. So here is Paul, this brainwashed person, blinded by Satan, and he wouldn't do anything less than to forge ahead with all of his might, with every last ounce of his strength to stamp out, to shut down, and to obliterate the cause of Christ. Well, we go on here, and, and we think about that aspect of it, and you may say, well, why are you being so dramatic about this? Why, why do we need to know this information? Well, you need to know it because you have to see what's in Paul's heart. You have to know what everybody else knew about him. You have to know how the Jews felt about him. And you have to know how Christians felt about him. And you have to know all of that because that's the key to the first part of his argument about how monumental that his conversion was. So he's not some wishy-washy guy that has no opinions. He's not an unlearned person who's ignorant and easily led astray or led by the nose to, to change his opinion. He's not, he's not some gullible cultist that fell for something and so he shaves off all his hair and becomes a Hare Krishna. We're not talking about some young kid here who's a wide-eyed fanatic and somebody convinced him to put on a suicide vest. He's an educated erudite, well-reasoned, logical, highly intelligent person, a guy with a mind like a steel trap. And so he is not susceptible 
to change. Paul's not the guy walking down the street one day and he sees somebody coming up to him carrying a cross or holding a sign and and shouting at chariots that are going by and, and stops Paul and says, Hey man, do you know when you're going when you die? You know, as much as we can appreciate the boldness of Ray Comfort and his technique, perhaps, this is not an interview in which the soul winner very cleverly says, did you ever tell a lie? What does that make you? Did you ever steal anything? What does that make you? So how can you go to heaven if you're a liar and a thief? And then hands him a track and gives him, leads him in three, gives him three points, leads him in a prayer, and Paul says, boy, thanks, man. Now I see the light. I mean, nobody is going to approach Paul like that. You won't get 15 seconds with the Apostle Paul with that kind of approach. So what I'm telling you here is we're talking about a man who cannot be moved. Somebody who cannot be swayed in his opinion. There is no human that could ever be convincing enough to pull Paul out of this deep hole that he dug in Phariseeism. Now I look at it, and you look at it, and we say there is no way this guy is going to get saved. There is just no way he can. Not unless something uncommon, not unless some way over-the-top miracle does it. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. I mean, when you got saved, did God shine a brilliant light around you? Did Jesus come and speak to you personally when you got saved? Now you're getting the picture of what Paul says had to happen to him This is what he's talking about in Galatians 1. He starts out with his pre-conversion and he says, I didn't get this gospel from men because there's not a man on God's green earth who could have convinced me of this. There is no possible way that I would have changed my mind and nothing would have lifted me out of the depths of depravity that I was in, in that deadness of my religion. Nothing will do it but a visit from God Almighty himself. And of course, that's true in the conversion of any sinner, isn't it? That's what happens. It's not our powers of persuasion that cause people to come to Christ. But here's Paul's testimony. This is his point of telling us what he was like before his conversion. This is what he says. You look at my life, what I was before I became a Christian. Look what I did. Look at how zealous that I was for religion my religion. Look how far that I progressed. Look how I persecuted the church. And now look what I am now. I'm preaching the faith that I once tried everything I could to destroy. So how did I get from where I was to where I am now? And how can you explain that except by some supernatural act of God, some relationship that I have with God in Christ? How do you explain it otherwise? Now you see that? This is how you tell the gospel didn't come from men. It's how you tell tell that he's telling the truth. No one can change him but God. And that's what God did. Now let me tell you a little bit about my life. I know that I was a sinner. I know that I needed to be saved. But I have to tell you quite honestly, I never lived a life like Paul. I was saved when I was seven years old. I grew up in a pastor's house. I heard the Bible before I can even talk could talk my mother still has the certificate of where I was on the cradle roll of the South Broadway Baptist Church in Lexington Kentucky she still has some of the papers that I had in the beginners class when I became a Christian I'd never beat anybody up up for being a Christian I wasn't a rebellious kid I don't have a life story to tell like Paul and there's nobody in here who has a story like his 
But every one of us that's saved knows this, that no matter who we were, no matter where we were, it took God to change our hearts. We couldn't do it. It took God working in us. Now, there's some that he saves from great sins and many sins, and some, at least in our estimation, that he saves from lesser sins. But no matter what they're like, what we're like, God has to do that. And so, for those that doubted Paul, he put it this way. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. The worst sinner that ever lived. That's the way that Paul looked at this guy who was once named Saul. He was the worst of the worst, and nobody could save him but God, and God did. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul uses what he was like before he became a Christian to prove there's only one way that he could be saved, only one way that he could be teaching what he now teaches, which is the gospel of God, and that's because it had to come directly from God. It's the only way that he could get it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and what a great story we have here about the Apostle Paul, and what uh, marvelous grace was bestowed upon him to save such a, such a sinner as he was. But as we look at ourselves and we think about this, so maybe we would try to judge ourselves as being better than Paul, not having done all of the evil that Paul did. But we know, Lord, that we've fallen so short, fall, fallen far short of your glory. We're, we're sinners. There's no way that we could ever live to the standard that you want us to live by. No way that we could do what's required of us. The only way that we can come to you is through Jesus Christ, who is our perfection. So we thank you, Lord, for saving our souls. And we see ourselves as unworthy sinners that are on the, were on the way to hell. But we met you, and we thank you, Lord, that we now know you as Savior. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.